Welcome to the Fury Theory Podcast, brought to you by EFB Advocacy. EFB means excellent for business. I'm joined by my colleagues, Adam Belmar and John Easton. We've taken a bit of a break from the Fury Theory Podcast. I was out of town. Adam was out of town. I was out of town again. Congress is out of town. The one man who was not in ta- out of town was John Easton, who was working at his post 24-7. It's good to be here. And we're glad that he's here. We are rested, tanned, and ready. Well, I'm not really rested. I spend a lot of time with the family, and it's tiring with the kids. But I love the kids, and they're a lot of fun. Um, you've had some nice time in, in Well, Florida. yeah, you know, suntan like this doesn't just, you know, come out of a bottle. You could get an untanning bed, and I think that would be a lot of fun. But I actually went down to southern Florida and laid this beautiful big body out in the sun and let it get all tanned up. And you know what? It is tan, and it's rested and ready. And, you know, we will bring up at some point in time later in the future the whole idea of tanning beds. That's a teaser, and we're excited to tease it for you. Uh, Theory one, Trump. Unmanaged, unburdened, unhinged. The president is channeling his inner Frank Sinatra and doing everything his way. This really came clear uh, yesterday at an event at West Virginia where he had a script that was supposed to kind of talk about his number one accomplishment, tax cuts, and he threw the script up in the air. I've had bosses have done that before. They've taken the script, talking to the press, and said, this is it. And this is their cry for authenticity, their their cry for no longer to be managed. Uh, Adam Belmar, does this work? Um, Yeah, I mean, I think the optics of the president sort of tossing out the – the script and trying to be more from from the heart and, and shoot from the hip is, is is in line with the president's style. But I have to tell you, a lot of money, a lot of time, a lot of energy on the part of White House staff goes into setting up meetings and events like this on important policy topics. So when the president flies all the way out there after months of getting everyone together in the right place at the right time in the right room and says, screw it, we're not talking about what I brought you here to talk about, no, that doesn't work very well for people. And uh, I, I think the president needs to show some more respect for folks when they come together to talk about important policy uh, initiatives. John Easton, uh, the president moved from tax cuts, which is a fairly unifying thing. It's had a good impact on the economy, and talked about Mexican rapists. What's he up to? I think he's he's dying for that um, that uh, the, that that authenticity, the need to communicate authenticity. Uh, it, you know, to Adam's point, it it you know he also likes the laughs. It's almost like the a rea- reality TV. It's like something a little maybe a little unexpected, but when they see it, they love it. The audience. But I saw a clip of this woman in the audience who actually was in tears. Uh, thanking him for the tax cuts and saying that she wanted – she showed up to come to thank him in person for uh, leading on the tax cut issue. And, and I guess to, you know, to Adam's point about all the preparations uh, that go into an event like this, I, I think that part of what he's saying is that, I mean, the, the people behind the president feel it's their job and duty yeah. to communicate a very serious message and a very serious policy message – I know the best events that I've been a part of with with a with a U.S. senator have been those that were uh, very carefully orchestrated. Um, you know, maybe it'd be a panel discussion or it'd be a summit of of some sort on a very serious topic to the particular state and really the particular region of that state, right. where the community 
cares very deeply about these issues that were brought to the fore. And let's say a senator, or in this case a president, decides to throw the script up in the air. It, it can be a little insulting to the people in the audience as well. No doubt about that, but he doesn't really care about the no. people in the audience. What he cares about is a bigger political topic. And for him, it seems to me, the political topic is immigration. And he decided to um, go full-fledged Trump that he ran in the campaign on and decided, that, you know, we're not going to – he gave, gave up on DACA. He's blamed the Democrats for DACA. And he's making a big deal out of this caravan coming up through Mexico – He's sending in the National Guard. It seems to me that this was a pretty calculated strategy on this guy, if he didn't, even if he didn't tell his staff, that this immigration thing is the way I'm going to get my people reelected. Yeah, and I feel like uh, the president is in some ways uh, very good at being an open book. This is the thing that's on his mind. This has really captured his attention. He's doing other substantive things from the White House, including – uh, this move to push the National Guard, not unprecedented, down to the border. And so he decided he was going to flip the script and talk about that. I get it. It is things that people respond to. But I also believe that as you look at 2018 and the upcoming election, that uh, people really do need to continue to hear from the president about the substantive improvements that come from tax reform and the things that he has accomplished. Um, I'll, I'll leave it there, Jim. Well, yeah, and I think that he, he remembers very clearly the campaign. And right. And what he believes got him elected, and he didn't believe that tax cuts, while it was a good line, that's not what got elected. What got him elected was consistent and methodical discipline on talking about immigration and getting tough on immigration. Getting tough on immigration and also getting tough on trade, which he also talked a lot about last when we were gone. I mean, the fact is is that trade is uh, one of his campaign promises. We're going to now get in a trade war with the Chinese, which – you know, a lot of people – he says we can't lose a trade war with China, the Chinese because they have such a much bigger uh, trade surplus over us than, and, we, and we're, getting, we're getting killed. Um, and if you talk to economists, you know, they kind of agree with him, although they don't want to agree with him because they think that trade wars are always bad. But we are getting our clocks cleaned, Adam Belmar, by the Chinese. Do you think that this is a smart political strategy for this president? Yeah, I do think it's a smart strategy. Um, he's definitely once again bringing – uh, his rhetoric from the campaign uh, and some of the promises that he made about being strict and tough on uh, the trade practices that are hurting us. The, the problem is that the, the, the press, and I'm very anxious to hear what you guys think about this, is calling this a trade war. The reality is it's not a war yet. No shot has been fired. Right. It, it, it's almost as though, John Easton, that they're talking out loud about the chess moves that they plan to make. We're going to move here, and then they say, well, if you move there, we're going to move here. And now Trump has said, well, we are going to move there, and now we know you're going to move here, and so we're going to add even more. And so we have the first five to six moves of what could be a trade war well enumerated, and economists are starting to figure out, okay, is this going to hurt us? Is it going to kill us? Who's it going to hurt? And it's about to happen. It hadn't happened yet. John, is it possible for the United States to lose a trade war with the Chinese? I guess it, what's, the, what's the definition of losing? I mean, I, I don't. Is it the stock market? Is it uh, jobs? Is it wage? I, I don't know how you quantify that, but I think I think what he's doing is what we've seen him do in a, on a number of high-level issues. The guy just goes right to almost to the end first, and then everybody scrambles to keep, catch up with him. The, right. me, the media included. In fact, the media the media foremost. In this, look at look at uh, Kim Jong Un, a summit with the North Korean leader. Yeah, I, I accept. And then everybody scrambles to try to figure out if that's even possible. And then Putin 
apparently he's going to meet with Putin at some point here pretty soon. And then everybody scrambles to figure out, you know, what that means. So a little bit the same on trade. Yeah. Uh, it, lot, a lot of rhetoric, a lot of hot rhetoric. And then um, we'll see if, if, if a shot is fired. Let me say, you know, it's interesting that one of the people that the Chinese singled out um, in this trade war, supposed trade war, was soybeans, which is uh, Iowa is one of Iowa's biggest things. And pork, yeah. another big Iowa thing. And you, who's the ambassador to China? Terry Branstad, former governor of Iowa. Right. I thought it was all very interesting. It's all very strategic. It's very, you know, we can we need to do something. I was reading an article by Fareed Zakaria, who's a, you know, kind of a left-wing journalist, CNN person, kind of an analyst. And he said that Trump's right. The Chinese have been screwing around with us for, for forever, and we got to do something because otherwise we're going to lose all our jobs to Chinese, and that's not a good position for us to be in anyway. Anyway, um, any other top thoughts on this topic? Uh, no, I, I, I just want to emphasize what John Easton just said about uh, this upcoming summit with the North Korean uh, leader Kim Jong Un. Of late, he made a secret train trip to Beijing to have a meeting with uh, uh, President Xi Jinping, and uh, we also know that uh, he's had uh, meetings, uh, not unprecedented, but certainly in the near term, unprecedented, these direct talks with the folks in South Korea. So a lot of actual substantive discussion has happened before we have this summit. And again, we don't know where it is. We don't know exactly when it is, although it's coming soon. It's kind of like the president. We'll have something for you in two weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think the president's onto something. I, I greatly support President Trump and his uh, movement on this and to get people to come together and talk. I just really believe that he's got to consult with folks up on the Hill and with his own party and make sure that he's not flying by the seat of his pants here. This is serious stuff. Well, and the same applies with Syria, where, where the president says now he wants to pull out troops within a certain amount of time soon. And now, once again, everybody's trying to you know, catch up to where he is. All right, let's move on. Theory two, cabinet affairs. When we last left the program, Sexy Rexy was being replaced by Mike Pompeo, the CIA chief, who was being replaced by Gina Haspel, who uh, was known mostly for uh, being unfairly tinged with the – Harsh interrogation techniques. Of Un- the is it unfair? I don't know. Actually, no, we're not quite and sure. both still need to be confirmed. Yeah, both still That's need right. to be confirmed. Over the break, uh, the president fired his VA uh, secretary and replaced him with his personal physician, and then also uh, fired H.R. McMaster and replaced him with John Bolton. Uh, John Easton, the, ne- the the current cabinet secretary under the hot seat is uh, EPA Secretary Pruitt. I was walking to our office and I saw a little uh, picture of him uh, <laughs> talking about his fifty dollar a night uh, condo a- lease, Karen Airbnb lease, which is typical market rates. But that being said, uh, he's under the hot seat. We do know that this president, when he sees a cabinet secretary under the hot seat, tends to like to fire him because he doesn't like anyone getting more press than he does. Um, is Scott, you, you're the one who did the staycation. Um, <laughs> Is, is Pruitt out? I don't think so. I, th- I think he sticks around, and, and I think for a number of reasons. One, I think the president is very satisfied with his performance so far. I mean, if anything embodies what Trump really wants to do, it probably is what Administrator Pruitt is doing at the EPA, rolling back a lot of uh, regulations that 
Trump and, and a lot of others, particularly the Republican Party, uh, think are you know very burdensome. But I think you have to consider two things that are coming at at Pump Pruitt and also the White House. It's obviously critics that are that are of of Pruitt's that are frothing at the mouth for right. him to be thrown out of there because he is that effective and he's making them crazy with opposition. But there's another uh, facet of this, and that's also sort of the insiders uh, who can really damage you in a, in a position like that. And I, I just – I'm not getting the sense that Scott Pruitt treats uh, people around him all that well, and he doesn't make very good decisions, again, on the personal level, whether it's flying first class when he doesn't need to or it's might be screaming through the city, uh, lights blaring in a motorcade, when you really – a cabinet official doesn't really get to do that. Maybe the – Pentagon chief, but that's about it. Maybe the secretary. If you want to, if you want to piss off a lot of commuters, you do that. And right. then, then that that story gets out, and then people get more angry at you. I would say, John, that that one of the things that happens for someone like Scott Pruitt is hated by the left, and they 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 want him out. Uh, to your point, they, he is doing what Trump wants him to do, but Trump also doesn't like a lot of controversy. Adam Belmar, uh, and so I think a lot of this is ginned up by the left. And a lot of it is mistakes made by a guy who doesn't understand how to be a good cabinet secretary. Well, I, I, I think all of that is, is pretty fair, actually. And I think that uh, Secretary Pruitt is wounded. Uh, he's wounded on substance. He's wounded on optics. And his judgment hasn't been all that great of late either in the way that he's personally handled it, including – uh, rejecting White House guidance on not doing a Fox News interview, but uh, I, you know, I saw so I, in that respect. I want to disagree with you in that he's safe because I, I really feel like he is wounded. But with everything else in the context that Fury put together, all the other Senate confirmations that are already ahead of this in line that are critical, I, I, I guess unless he is wounded substantially again and he's completely unviable, the president's probably going to stick with this, if only because he's got to pick and choose his battles with what he can get out of this. John Easton, there's been rumors that the president wants to put him in, replace him as attorney general. What do you think of that? You mean put Scott Pruitt in as AG? Yes. It's not happening. I mean, think about that. Put me in, coach. Jeff Sessions, it just is not going anywhere. If you want to see this place really burn... Uh, fire the attorney general. Can you imagine that confirmation fight? Yeah. You know, and how terrible it would be? Not only for the stuff he's done that outrages the left, but all the other stuff that he's done that are just unforced errors. Yeah, and I think one of the stories that it, it probably doesn't get written a lot because it, it really is mundane and, and isn't very sexy for the average reader is the confirmation process of all the people we just talked about right here. Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, has to schedule time. It usually takes a week to get a cabinet secretary through, and that's if the votes are there. Right. <laughs> and McConnell's not going to put a, a, a nomination on the docket if the votes aren't there. So we're talking about several – this is the you know cabinet-level nomination, and, and this isn't – nothing to say for the, the, all the other spots that need to be confirmed. Underneath these cabinet secretaries, there are hundreds, and they are being blocked weekly. So I would expect the Senate to probably – staying a, a lot of weekends now to get the time in that's necessary to process these nominations. Wow, that's a lot of fun. And it's going to be it may if that's the true, it's going to change the Senate a little you bit. Want, you want to hear something future. interesting? Uh, 
you mentioned the fact that since our last podcast, President Trump dismissed via tweet the Veterans Affairs Secretary, a holdover from the Obama administration, Shulkin, right. uh, someone who had very broad bipartisan support. And it was you know, one of the cases where the president held over a, uh, a, a, a Democratic nominee from the previous right. administration. And so he had some issues, too. The fellow that he has nominated to replace him, as you mentioned, his personal physician at the White House, Admiral Ronnie Jackson, he's a wonderful guy. I can tell you this because I know him, and I had a chance to serve alongside him in the Bush administration. He is a just a great American, right? He, he's with the 2nd Marines. He was running a combat surgical hospital near Fallujah uh, back in the early 2000s. It's such a, 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 an amazing uh, sort of American patriot that he was tapped even while he was serving in Iraq to go and serve on this special team at the White House that takes care of American presidents. He served in that role and did a lot of pre-advance work with me for President George W. Bush. He was actually uh, Barack Obama's uh, mm-hmm. physician right. and has, has continued to do so for President Trump. I just want people to know, this is a really amazing guy. You'd love to spend time with him. Whether or not that makes him qualified to be the head of Veterans Affairs, I honestly don't know, but senators are going to have to get to know him a bit first. Why Shulkin was an interesting story was because he got into some bad PR for some things that he did personally, and the White House said, you know, you can't go out and defend yourself. And that was – and he was pissed about it. Shulkin was really angry about not being able to defend himself. And so this is part of the deal here in Washington. Talk about the swamp. The swamp – has some swamp creatures that play dirty. Mm-hmm. They play in the swamp, and they are going after all of the Trump cabinet folks. They did it with uh, – they're doing it with Pruitt. They did it with Shulkin. They're doing it with Ben Carson. You go all down the line, and everyone's been in the hot seat. Rex Tillerson had his own bad press, and a lot of it is for personal spending. Right. Some of that personal spending was, was about at the same as uh, what the Obama folks spent. So there hasn't there there hasn't been a lot of effort to put this all in the context. There's always been there has been an effort though in putting the Bush or the the, the Trump folks on the hot seat and 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 making them squeam and the president you know deciding I'm going to get rid of you because I don't like this bad press. Yeah, and I just think that it's really difficult. Uh, I don't I'm not sure if the president truly understands the consequence of of getting rid of somebody just. The dominoes that fall from that alone that have to be put back together again, how much time that takes um, to get to get these through and i just I just feel like the number of positions the confirmable positions that are unfilled in this administration uh, is remarkable and it is actually a disservice to the American people um, yes we 're always in a political you know bloodbath around here, but there was just an article about the, the, the presidential caucus, uh, the Democrats who are likely to challenge Trump in 2020, how how much they are just reflexively no against uh, all of Trump's nominees. You know, I get it. I get the political objectives there, but part of me just says, you know, do something else. John, uh, you, you make a really important point, and that is when you are on, on The Apprentice, it's easy to fire people because you don't have to hire someone to replace them. But in the real world, especially when you're running a big government, if you're going to fire someone, you need to hire someone, and that takes up a lot of time, and the president doesn't have that much time left in this first term before the midterms happen. And he has a party that's so reflexively against uh, him filling those positions that it's, it's actually doubly difficult. Right. 
Theory 3, tech on the hot seat. So we have two of the biggest firms in the world, Amazon and Facebook, and they're both facing pressure from Washington quarters. Amazon, which owns the Washington Post, has been under the Twitter glare of President Trump, who hates them, and has spoken out against them and talked a variety of ways how he's going to punish them. Um, And it had an impact on their stock. We'll see if that sticks around or not. And then you have Facebook, who has issues uh, that uh, revolve around the campaign. uh, And the story that came out about Cambridge Analytics, a a firm that was used by the Trump folks um, to data mine. And now they are being uh, called before the House Energy and Commerce Committee and then a joint um, committee's in the Senate, apparently. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg is going to be under the hot seat there. Um, I'm going to throw this out to either one of you. It's going to be a jump ball. Whoever answers first gets to go first. Um, who has uh, got the most to lose by being on this hot seat? Who is going to be the, the one the most punished, Amazon or Facebook? Ding. Okay, I'll just go first. <laughs> uh, I, I think hands down Facebook. In, in my uh, estimation, in, in part because Facebook has some real substantive issues that um, senators are extremely interested in, are, are very upset about. Uh, this balance between privacy and, and data sharing, uh, clearly it's out of balance, and, and Zuckerberg said so. And as you see, uh, Mark Zuckerberg did a, did an interview for the first time in a long time. A, a, I think it was an exclusive with CNN. And then you saw COO Cheryl uh, Sandberg. Yep. Sandberg did um, a interview this morning with Today the Today Show. Oh, I'm so glad you brought it because that's really what I want to talk yeah, about. Yeah, and then yesterday with NBC. So there's a trauma offensive going on, and you, so you can tell that that Facebook has taken this extremely seriously, and and they need to. Amazon less so, only because. You got kind of these tweets popping off from from President Trump, but there isn't as much substance there. I believe, at least immediately, that threatens Amazon. You know, one thing, Adam. Uh, Amazon, they have a couple things that are tangible. They have their 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 actual uh, content, which they produce a lot of good content, and then they have the stuff that comes in your in your mailbox that you order, mm-hmm. which is kind of the Internet of Things. We go online, you get something, it comes right to your door. And so that's tangible. Facebook, far less so. It's far less. It's, it's social media, which is they got a huge valuation, but not tangible. Um, so I know you want to talk about Sheryl Sandberg. Um, I, I, I agree with what John is saying. Let me just put it that way. Yeah. Well, you know, I would just say this. We at EFB Advocacy um, have actually uh, – worked on one of these issues a little tangentially. We have represented in the past the National Association of Letter Care Professionals, uh, the folks who letter deliver carriers. Yeah. Le- the letter carriers. Yeah. And so what the president has done is he's he's sort of making what many believe to be baseless charges about Amazon riding the U.S. Postal Service, uh, you know, at a deficit and, and and stealing money from the U.S. taxpayers. And I think that it's been generally accepted that the president has misused some of the numbers that he's quoting, that on an operational basis the United States Postal Service is actually a profitable entity. They are largely uh, incredibly unprofitable when you factor into their legacy 
um, health care and uh, and a lot of their pension costs that Congress, costs. Congress put yeah. upon them. Um, but but specifically speaking about about Facebook, I agree with uh, Easton that they're the one who, who really is in, is in the, the hot seat. And I I know that people are super concerned still to this day about what actually happened in the 2016 election. It's tangential to what uh, Mr. Mueller is investigating. But really what we want to know about now is to what extent can government get involved, regulate, and make some specific rules that are going to help protect people's privacy. And when when John Easton talks about uh, Zuckerberg coming out and doing interviews, doing a call with uh, you know analysts on the street, and then Sheryl Sandberg this morning in this exclusive interview on, on NPR, really what they're saying is, we're opening the kimono. We did wrong. We understand that. And they're trying to characterize the conversation that we're going to see next week in the Senate and the House as being, you know what we did wrong? We didn't understand how the negative or bad motivations of bad actors could be used to take our platform and really use it uh, as a weapon. And they're saying that's a failure of our imagination to envision this and to do more about it. But now we know, and now we're going to do a better job. And I think the next question for many of the, the, the members on the committees will be, okay, when did you start thinking about this? And can you produce documentation that shows us how you envisioned these uh, malfeasances and the stealing of stuff? And they might get caught a little bit in their own PR two-step about when it started and, and when they realized, wow, our product can really hurt people. There's a couple things I want to say about Facebook. First of all, I'm an avid Facebook user. I'm on there all the time. I show pictures of my kids. You know, I know I'm not supposed to, but I do because my kids, I, I like, like, like that. I don't know why. I like to my mother to see it and blah, blah, blah. Um, Facebook has been under scrutiny. Um, not only for this, but if you look, they, there was a story that broke about how they were trying to get access to everyone's health records because they wanted to marry up their, their, their kind of analytics with actual health records to figure out what was, you know, if they can get some money out of that. And then they were also it also was revealed that uh, your instant message uh, text messages through instant messenger of Facebook they're not private they're they're fully accessible by Facebook and people if they were under the uh, thought that they, what they were sending was private it's not private yeah. and so that that's a revelation for a lot of folks and people are a little bit freaked out about about Facebook and you know Mark Zuckerberg is kind of you know he's got this. I think it's be interesting to see what he wears. If he wears that obnoxious hoodie, or if he actually, you know, tries to act like an adult. Um, <laughs> but he's also an extraordinarily wealthy man, uh, John Easton. Uh, you know, thinking about this and thinking about social media, you know, how do you think members look at Facebook? My my own experience of looking at a member's Facebook page is it's a very dark place where you have all kinds of bots and things uh. like that. You know come up and people say really nasty things about members of Congress. You know, that's actually, you just hit the nail on the head. For, for a member of Congress, social media, particularly, well, not, not particularly, Facebook, Twitter, uh, they see the incoming. And those who say that, that if they engage, I've worked with both uh, that, that don't engage on social media and those that do, those who do said they can't quit social media. They can't quit looking at all of the, both the compliments and the criticism. Right. They're addicted to both. And therefore, um, it does it does affect them deeply and personally. It, it just does. Well, it's, it's, like, it's like going to a county fair and getting 
hammered by your constituents, yelled at. It, it can be almost the same it's a great. That's a great example, actually, as, as, as people who've been out there and run campaigns the way that you have. It's exactly traditionally how people would hear from the community, good and bad, ugly and pretty. Yeah. And, uh, you know, part of our business model at EFB Advocacy is to be able to help connect uh, the substantive policy arguments and education that go on on the Hill with the constituents and the people who are being impacted and let uh, members know exactly how folks are faring and what's going on. And we do that through Facebook a great deal. And we do it for the same reason that uh, that other big name brand and advertisers do because we all self-identify, John, so much about ourselves. We can target to audiences that are meaningful and make it cost-effective play. I don't have any problem with that. I don't either. I, I will say, uh, you know, we have had some problems, though, using some of their stuff and getting – let's hope that they don't punish us and put us on some sort of algorithm that no one sees this this podcast. And, you know, that's part <laughs> of the – We can take care of no one seeing that all by ourselves. Yeah, I know. That's a good point. But that is part of the thing. There's not a whole lot of transparency in the algorithms, and, you, you know, you're never quite sure, you know, if it's all fair or if they get to pick winners and losers. And I think that that can be part of the frustration. And, you know, there's also this effort uh, by the left especially to make sure that the right doesn't get a chance to publish its stuff. And there's not there's not a whole lot of censorship of the left. There's plenty of censorship of the right. And I think this the the hearings next week. Uh, the 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 one in the Senate is a joint hearing between the the Senate Judiciary Com- Committee and the Senate Commerce Committee. I just think it's going to be fascinating to see how Facebook prepares for this hearing, and actually how the senators prepare for the for that hearing. That's Tuesday, and then the House uh, Committee hearing is on Wednesday. I just think that is going to be fascinating because how much it will be, how much time will be spent on what happened, and and really digging in and trying to get answers to that, and how much time is spent on, okay, well now what are you going to do? Right. How, how are you going to? How are you going to fix this? You said you screwed up the balance between privacy and sharing user data. Well, how are you going to get to that balance? My my personal opinion is you never get that balance. Yeah, and and you know anybody who's a. a a Washington hand worth their salt will be advising Mr. Zuckerberg that the questions that they ask are really the political gold for them. Mm-hmm. You're not going to be in a position to answer these questions in a substantive way. In fact, most of the time will be eaten up by posturing and you know grandiose questions, not by a search for truth or information. Yeah, and Zuckerberg is lucky if that is the case. I, you know, I f- I'm fascinated by the fact that we're talking about Amazon, and I want to talk turn to Amazon in a couple of seconds, and we're talking about Facebook. We're not talking about Google, who is, you know, is really the six billion pound gorilla, yeah. and was involved in all this stuff as well. And it's amazing to me that they've escaped a lot of the scrutiny. And we're and I'm, if, if I'm Mark Zuckerberg, I'm turning to my government affairs guys and saying, "What the heck? Why is this me? What about Google?" That's what I would say. And I, one one other observation about about Amazon and Jeff Bezos. Bezos is worth I think about six hundred billion dollars, not maybe close to a trillion. I mean, he's he's worth a lot of money, and he is putting small businesses out of business. And and this is part of what what he's been doing with, um, with his his game plan, and it's 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 actually quite fascinating, and the working conditions of the folks who are, who are doing the, um, the actual the Amazon work, I mean what what Bezos wants he wants to be fully animated fully automated he doesn't really want people doing a lot of the stuff and the people that do work in these factories and loading all this stuff they work a lot of hours and it's. It's it's tough work, and so I, I I wonder you know when Trump is making this attack on Amazon, 
if this could be, you know, fertile ground, and I do know talking to other other folks out there in Washington that Amazon is now seen as a much bigger problem for their business model, uh, if you're like a brick-and-mortar store especially, than, than Facebook or, or Google. And so, I, you know, I'm wondering about how that all plays out uh, within, within the Washington gang. Yeah. I, I, uh, I think all of that's fascinating and true, and at the same time we applaud the disruptive and innovative nature of any business that can change, you know, longstanding paradigms. Uh, and then I, I often turn to a business that, that John Easton's been interested in, which is uh, um, n- not Amazon, but uh, eBay, uh, right? This other great digital commerce site. But in, in eBay, what you have often have is small businesses being able to connect and thrive and survive in an environment uh, that's overpowered by Amazon. There, there's true. a lot here. I don't have the solutions to it, but there oh, yeah. are a lot of great questions that need to be answered. Well, what I think is, is funny, what, what just came to mind when you were asking that, is that it really is the disruptor angry with the disruptor. <laughs> that's right. That's exactly right. <laughs> you know? um, so we're going to uh, buy and sell in a couple seconds, but I want to turn our attention to now uh, really quickly uh, the fact that we are in entering spring season, um, and which means baseball, and also it means um, it also means the, uh, the the golf. We have the Masters on this weekend, which I'm really excited about. So, John Easton, we're talking about spring sports, and we're talking about um, the Nationals, and I'm I'm a little worried. I'm a little worried they don't have enough pop in their lineup. I'm a little bit worried that I'm Daniel Murphy's got to come back. I'm a little bit worried that uh, Montero did not call a, a good enough game. Um, I'm a little bit worried about, um, but I'm really worried about Ryan Zimmerman uh, because he didn't do spring training, and he made a big show of not doing spring training, and he's too big for spring training, and he's too old for spring training. If you're too old for spring training, it seems to me that you're too old to play baseball. Uh, and I know he's a cultural icon. I know he's our first draft choice. But, dude, you got to perform. If you're not going to do spring training, you got to perform. Well, and it's not just you know for your own body and, and all that muscle memory and, and game situations, but it's your team too. Right. You gotta gotta be in there with your team. And I've found in sports uh, that you know a lot of times if 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 somebody steps away and says you know for whatever reason I can't I can't practice, that does affect the chemistry a bit. Ryan probably my favorite player on the Nationals. Uh, because he's sort of he's the cornerstone. He was like really the first guy, first star, and um, and I love the guy, and I love all of his efforts for for, for MS uh, in honor of his mom, and I just I love him to death. I wasn't too keen on this decision either, and I was at the game yesterday as well, the home opener, and very disappointed that bases loaded. He he put that blooper up there. It is the seventh game of the season, and they won their first um, six, no five, fifth, four, first four games. I'm sorry. So now, I mean, now they're four and three. We uh, we've got 162 games to play. So um, I know it's early in the season. But uh, Adam, you have any thoughts? I know no, I have no thoughts. Let me let me say one last thing about golf, and I, I just want to make this observation because you have Jordan Spieth and Roy McIlroy, and then you have uh, Phil Mickelson, and then you have this great comeback by Tiger Woods. And this is one of the rare moments that you're going to see all four of these guys compete and, and compete hard. And it's a special moment. So if you have a chance, please watch the Masters this weekend. It's going to be fantastic. All and, and not only that, but a lot of you who, who 
tune into the Masters uh, could not have missed the coverage of Tony Finnell. Right. right. Who dislocated his ankle on Wednesday on a practice round. Well, it was actually a, it was a competition. It was a par, par, three, par, three. par three competition. He, 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 did, he made a hole-in-one, runs down the fairway in, in, in celebration, starts jogging backwards, dislocates his ankle, and in front of everybody – all the galleries and everything, he pops it back in himself. Wow. Wow. He said on a pain scale, 1 to 10, it was, it was 10 for sure. <laughs> and, he, and he jogged back to the, uh, back to the tee box, and, and, and he was actually a co-leader for a while right. in yesterday's round. I couldn't believe it. He, I think he finished uh, second or third in yesterday's round. Phenomenal. And the guy is so well spoken. I just, I just became a fan very quickly. And one, of, I love that ESPN's covering this uh, yeah. much more extensively than the old days. And I think it's fantastic. Uh, Adam Belmar, we're going to get you in the conversation here because you don't care about it's baseball right. or golf. And we're going to ask, what are you buying or selling today? <clears throat> that is a great question. Um, <laughs> you know, I am very interested at the moment uh, in thinking about the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King. We've had uh, remembrances this week, 50th anniversary, and one of the things that uh, that I'm buying is history and context. And, and when I say that, I mean for us here in Washington, D.C., people are helping to tell the story of what happened directly after Dr. King's assassination and the, and the riots that ravaged our city. It was before I was born. I'm not as old as either of these two gentlemen <laughs> thank here. You, thank you very much. Um, but or wise. <laughs> Mm-hmm. But uh, I think that it, it, when, when, when we have days like this, weeks like this, it's, it's worth for all of us to take a second to read and, 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 and think about uh, what we can learn about what's happened in the past and how we can avoid uh, problems like that in the future. And so I'm, I'm very sort of up with the memory of Dr. King at the moment and encourage people to think about how it's impacted all of our lives. Johnnyson, uh, I'm going to go in in the same vein, uh, a little bit of a walk down memory lane, and, and, and it's a little bit about coaching. I'm, I'm buying coaching because uh, John brought up uh, that we are starting the spring season of, of uh, baseball, and for me, it's softball because I coach my daughter's, uh, my youngest daughter's softball team, and have been for a number of years now. And and I think that um, the walk down memory lane is because my dad well, he coached me. And this is actually his birthday. He passed away two years ago. Oh, so happy birthday. birthday. Happy birthday, Dad. And uh, I just think what he taught me was getting involved with kids like this, coaching kids, leading kids is a real noble effort. And, and the rewards are endless. He was right. I love it. It's not always uh, – sometimes it's frustrating. But it's uh, a lot of fun, and it's, uh, it's just uh, a great thing to be involved with. Um, I am buying and selling. I'm going to first start with selling. I'm selling April snow. I want to get rid of it. It all must go. We were driving from Chicago back through the mountains, back to Washington, D.C., and we had like three snow squalls. What's up with that? No more April snow. It drives me bonkers. Buying. I'm buying Catholic University sports athletics. Notre Dame won this Frozen Four. They won the women's. Final Four, mm-hmm. and Villanova won the Final Four basketball, NCAA basketball men's. Good on you. For all the Catholic schools out there, good on you. I think it's, uh, it's, it's great that they won. They, they are far outnumbered in, in resources, far outnumbered in uh, personnel, 
but they come and they compete, and uh, they, they did great. And so congratulations to the Irish and to the Wildcats. And for that, let me just say uh, thank you for listening to the EFB, the Fear Theory Podcast brought to you by EFB. EFB means excellent for business. Yes. Yes. <laughs>